looking real obvious I hadn't preached in two months. You know? <laughs> so brother don't turn on the mic. He don't know where he is in the service. Let me offer a word of prayer. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we come now to hear from you. We do believe that you are a speaking God. And we are confident that your word is true. And so we pray, speak to us this morning and give us hearing ears. Lord, there's something we need to hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make each of us individually and all of us collectively attentive to that thing we need to hear this morning. Help us to forget all the distractions. Help us to forget uh, extra sentences and, and, and long paragraphs and uh, the things that aren't for us this morning. Let them sort of vanish. Let them fall to the ground. But the things that are for us, Lord, let them be stored in our hearts. And, and Lord, keep the birds of the air away from it, Lord. Keep the cares of this world from choking it out. Let it, let it bear fruit a hundredfold in our lives. Maybe there's just one phrase that would change our lives this morning. Maybe there's a whole argument that would, that would change us this morning. Whatever it is, Lord, let us hold fast to what is for us this morning. Speak, O oh Lord. Your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Go where you're wanted, not where you're tolerated. Raise your hands this morning if you need a Bible. There's some ushers here who are passing out Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. They'll get one to you, and you'll be helped to follow along. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Go where you're wanted, not where you're tolerated. Anybody heard that kind of sentiment recently? It's a good saying. Understandable. It's basically good advice. Who wants to be where they're not wanted? Right? But what if you have no choice but to go where you're not wanted and to live where you're merely tolerated? Perhaps even where you are rejected? What if you're despised and unwelcome in a place? Well, then how do you practice this? And if you have no means to go someplace else, I mean, you're stuck there. Oh, you do. Beloved, that really is the Christian reality. We exist in a world that's hostile and unwelcoming toward Christ and toward his people. It was always going to be that way. You remember what Jesus told us in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, speaking to his disciples there. He says there, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is an abiding reality for the biblical Christian. Or think of how James put it in James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. That's a way to greet people, ain't it? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, notice that, makes himself an enemy of God. So we exist in this irreconcilable difference between Christ's people and the world system. It's so irreconcilable that if you were trying to be friendly with the world, God's like, you hostile with me. And we exist in this situation because the world has rejected our Savior. It, it doesn't really want anything to do with Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible. The one that has something to say about how we live and where we go eternally. It, it just doesn't want that Jesus and it doesn't want Jesus' people. Because they remind them of that Jesus. So we live in a hostile world. And the question becomes, well, how should we live in such a world? In fact, how do we live the way God would want us to live? He has called us to do things like be holy because he is holy. Well, how do you live holy 
in a hostile world. You, you're trying to be prayerful. You're trying to be in the spirit. And the moment you get out your driveway into traffic, you test it. Am I going to be holy or hostile back? You get to the workplace, you find out that your coworkers are the same kind of people as the people you went to school with that used to have to do group projects with. They didn't do their assignment, and now they're looking at you. I'm going to be holy in this hostile world. That's the question that we're considering as we come to the book of 1 Peter. You know that this year we have dedicated the pulpit to thinking about holiness. We spent the first part of the year working through the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And so we were thinking about holiness uh, and the foundation for holiness through that Old Testament book. And now we want to come and get a, a New Testament word on this and to think about what it means to be the holy people of God in a world that doesn't want us. Now, if you want to take this sermon and put it, boil it down to one point, you might put it this way. It's God's work that defines us, not the world's welcome. It's God's work, not the world's welcome, that defines us. God considers us special, despite the world's hostility. And we're going to unpack that in four points, Lord willing, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, these two verses are our scripture memory assignment for next week, right? We're going to all memorize 1 Peter, yeah? Amen? Wow. Wow. Y'all was like, I am not making a vow before the Lord. I'm not, I'm not trying to keep. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That's what we're going to memorize for next week. We're going to crawl through this book slowly. So you really only have about one sentence to memorize each week. We can do that, right? Amen, okay? So four points as we look at 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Number one, I want you to know, God wants you to know this morning, beloved, that ordinary people can be special people in God's sight. Ordinary people can be special people in God's sight. Number two, those special people, though, those special people in God's sight will face suffering in this world. Will face suffering in this world. So being special doesn't exempt us from suffering. Number three, though, even so, even though we suffer, God does wonderful things for us. Does wonderful things for his special people. And finally, God will give us blessings that defy our burdens. He'll give us blessings that will defy our burdens. This is how we know it's God's work that defines us and not the world's welcome. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this letter is starting out like a typical letter in the ancient world or even in our world. Uh, you start a letter with a what? A greeting. And that's what we're seeing here. In the first part of this, he introduces himself as the author, Peter. And then he addresses the, the letter to his audience, those who are elect exiles. And then he says a few more things about who they are as a people. And, and finally, he sort of wishes them well. There's this little wish prayer there at the end. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So it's a very typical sort of greeting and opening, but it includes some rather extraordinary and striking truths. The first truth is this, that ordinary people can be special people in God's sight. I take that from just Peter introducing himself. Notice how plainly he does it there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, it's an ordinary greeting, short and sweet. And that's kind of fitting because Peter was an ordinary man with an ordinary background. We remember Peter. When we first meet him, he has an ordinary job. He's a fisherman. He's out by the Sea of Galilee throwing his net into the sea. When Jesus walks up to him for the first time and says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He's probably, his skin is probably leathery and sun-beaten. His hands probably callous from casting nets and grabbing fish. He's an 
ordinary man with an ordinary job, and he's a man with an ordinary education. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and the apostles were uh, in a debate with the Pharisees, the elite religious leaders, this is how they described him in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. They said he's an uneducated common man. How many of you know you So how many of you know that when someone calls you uneducated and common, they're not complimenting you? You you not you not a big willy in that society, right? He's an ordinary man in terms of his education, and he has some rather ordinary qualities as a human being. Peter had something of a temper. You remember, this is the brother who cut a man's whole ear off. I mean, before there was Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield, there was Peter in the garden, clipping off ears, right? And he was overconfident. You remember how he boasted that he would never deny the Lord? Right? And what happened? Before the rooster crowed three times, he had denied Jesus. Had, hadn't maybe been more than 24 hours. He's an ordinary man with ordinary faults and weaknesses. Peter's every man. But he's also special. He's special in God's sight. There's some unique things that happen in Peter's life that, that really mark him out as, as special. For example, it's Peter who first confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And do you remember what Jesus said when, he, when Peter said that? Because Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they had all these theories. They're talking about what other people think. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. He's a man who's receiving special revelation from God. And Jesus goes on to give him a nickname in that very scene. So he has a special name. That name Peter is not his given name. But Jesus renames him Peter and, and tells us what it means. It means a rock or a stone. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Great theological debate through Christian history as to, as to what that rock is. Let's just say it's both what Peter confesses and Jesus himself, or excuse me, Peter himself. He becomes a rock, a foundation stone in the building of the church. And so he has a special name, and he has special experiences with Jesus. I mean, Peter walked on water. I know some of us think we can. We think we all that like that, right? Think the sun don't rise till our feet hit the floor. But Peter actually walked on water for a step or two at least. He had a special experience with Jesus, and, and not just that, but, but he has a, a special experience with Jesus. He was one of only three who were on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord was transfigured and appeared there with the prophets. Peter was there. And Peter was the third person to the tomb after the resurrection. The women were there first. They always there first. The women were there first. They come back and tell the apostles, and John outruns Peter to the tomb. But Peter, huffing and puffing, makes it to the tomb. Becomes one of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Here's an ordinary man having some extraordinary experiences with God. And he has a special role. What it says there? An apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is nowadays an almost technical word, technical title. But what it really just means in the ordinary Greek language of that day is messenger. He's a sent one, right? So if you, if you send your son or daughter into the other room to tell your spouse uh, some message, you just turn them into an apostle, right? They are sent ones. They are messengers. But in the early church, in the New Testament, these apostles, the original 12, took on special significance. They were the ones who saw Jesus' ministry from the point that he was baptized until he was resurrected. They walked with him and learned from him. They were hand-chosen by him to really be the, the leadership, the sort of council of leadership for the early church. And Peter is one of those apostles sent by Jesus Christ with Jesus' message for the world. He has a special role. 
So what we get here just by thinking about the life of the author is, is our first point, is the illustration that, 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 that ordinary people in God's hands become really quite special, become extraordinary. Ordinary people like fishermen become apostles in the foundation of the church. God uses ordinary people with ordinary lives to do extraordinary things. Well, what do we do with that for ourselves? Well, a couple thoughts. One, be open to being special in God's sight. Now, I realize in a room like this, there are at least two categories of people. Some people are like, oh, yeah, I'm already special. The next, the next application is for you, okay? I mean, just stay right there for a moment. But in a room like this, there are a lot of people who are like, I don't feel special at all. My life is ordinary. It's mundane. It's tedious. It's tiresome. Yeah. I'm bored. There's nothing to do. That's, that's teenagers, right? Ain't nothing to do. I'm bored. How routine is changing an infant's diaper over and over again, or washing dishes, or going to the same job. Life can feel so ordinary that we begin to think, there's no way I could be extraordinary. There's no way I could be special. I'm just one in the herd. I'm just one in the masses. There's, I'm faceless in the crowd. <laughs> Not to God. Not to God. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows every detail of your face. He knows every detail of your life. He's with you in everything that's mundane and may make it anything but mundane. Moms and dads changing diapers. You might be changing the diapers of the next Peter or Junior. You, you might be changing diapers of the person who wins the Nobel Prize and, and, and cures something malignant. Students, what are you preparing for in life? You're going to school every day, high school, middle school, college. You're studying your lessons. You're turning in your papers. I hope it's not just because you were told to do so. I, I hope God gives you a sense that, yes, in many ways, my life is ordinary. And in many ways, I'm kind of bored with what I'm doing. But there's a God who regards me as special. Blue-collar employees. Nobody coming by your job saying you're great. Nobody raising the tickets, the prices of tickets, because you're not Lionel Messi coming to town, right? You, you're just doing your job day by day, standing your post, moving that bucket. You're the today's equivalent of a fisherman. There's a Savior who will take your life and make it great. And even if he doesn't, will glorify himself in your ordinary life. Ordinary people can be special people, unemployed people. I pray that you don't feel any shame in being unemployed. All of us at some point have been unemployed and some point again may be unemployed. No shame in that. And there's a Savior who can take even unemployment and make you special in his plans. Unemployment might just be God's fancy word for free time to serve him in an extraordinary way. None of us are beyond being special in God's sight, single, married, Depressed. You know that some of the greatest preachers and songwriters in the history of the church struggled and were almost paralyzed with depression. Charles Spurgeon is regarded as the prince of preachers. His sermons are read today. Struggled, debilitating depression. William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cooper wrote some of the hymns that are still sung today, great hymns in the church. I mean, this man, was paralyzed by depression to the point of attempting and thinking about suicide, needing sort of the care and watch of a faithful friend 
John Newton to keep him alive. And we sing praises to God with the words he wrote, even to this day. Ordinary people may be special people in the hands of our God. So be open to being special. Welcome it. Rejoice in the ordinary. But that's no barrier to God doing extraordinary things in and through us. Now, I said there was a seventh application. Those of you who already feel special, click back in. Okay? Here's the second thing. Be humble when God makes you special. Be humble when God makes you special. Peter could have boasted of all kinds of wonderful things in the opening of this letter. We just reviewed his life. Those were just little clippets from his life. He could have began this letter with, don't you know I'm Peter? You ought to be real happy you got this letter from me. Let me tell you about what I used to do with Jesus. You know, you know, he could have been name dropping. Yeah, I know, I know Jesus' brothers, you know, John and all them cats. We used to run together, you know. The three of us was real tight with Jesus. I, but, you know, don't tell nobody, but I was number one among the three. You know what I mean? He could have just been like that about it, sort of boastful about it and, and bigging up himself. Instead, he just calls himself, in chapter 5, verse 1, a fellow elder. It's remarkable. He's an apostle over the church, writing to Christians spread throughout Asia. And when he comes to sort of talking about himself, he says, I, I'm just one of you. I'm just another pastor along with you. And it's Peter who tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, these wonderful words, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think he learned that when that rooster crowed. I think he learned that when he ran away from the sight of denying Jesus, weeping bitterly, the Bible says. And I think he learned that when the resurrected Jesus said, uh, Jesus said go get Peter. And affirmed his love for Peter three times. So be open to being special, but, but be humble. God is going to work in your life. Be humble when he does. Be grateful when he does. And stay low. Here's the second point from this greeting of Peter. Special people in God's sight face suffering in the world. We notice by thinking about the audience to the letter. Notice that he says, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I've been working on my scripture reading. Let me give you a little tip right here. PGC, so that's PG County, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, <laughs> Asia, and Bithynia, right? Peter says, now, you are elect exiles. What a fantastic phrase. Elect means you're chosen. That's what it means, that God chose you. And God's election is associated with God's love. He chose you because he loved you. God choose, freely chooses us because God freely loves us. It's always been that way. It was that way with Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, God is speaking to Israel there as his chosen covenant people in the Old Testament. And he says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are holy. You are set aside. You are consecrated, especially for me. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. <laughs> this is so good. God chose you because he loves you. And he chose you in order to love you. It's his love that's at the bottom and in the middle and at the top. He chose you because he loves you, not because you were great in number, not because you were special. You were ordinary, right? There's no real difference between Israel and the other nations, right? They're all sinners. They're all in need of a Savior. There's no difference between me and you, black, white, brown, yellow, old, young, or male, female. There's no real significant difference that marks us out one above the other. Here's what, here's what makes us special. God loves us. 
From before the world began, God loved you. He loved you, he loved me, and he loved us not because of anything in us. He loved us simply because he loved us. Election is about love, and Peter takes that Old Testament language of election now, and he applies it not just to the Old Testament Israel, but he applies it to this church, these Christians scattered throughout the whole world. Oh, that you would and I would feel loved by God this morning. I mean, not just to not just to say we know God loves us because we got some Sunday school theology. That God is love. And we have felt his love. And he loves us. Just as we are. All of our ordinariness. And he loves us not because we've earned it, but just because he loves us. You are elect, beloved, chosen. This is the expression of God's love. But now, just as that gets to feel warm and fuzzy, Peter slams this other word right next to it. Exile. We are elected. Exiles. Now, an exile is someone who's been forced from their home. They are forced out of their home country, their homeland, their home city. They are forced out of what they know. They are displaced. And there may be any number of things that have caused that displacement. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 11 and many other places where we could read, that exile was caused by their sin, and God judged them for their sin, and, 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 the, and the judgment took the form of running them out of their own promised land. Well, as Christians, we're not given a promised land, not in this world. As Christians now, we are exiles everywhere we go. We, we give testimony to that every time we say, that Christian saying, this world is not our home. Right? No place on this planet is meant to be, to the Christian, their enduring home. It's not where we root our hearts. It's not where we root our lineage, our heritage. Not, not spiritually, not primarily. This world, this ball of clay, is not our home. We are exiles everywhere we go, this has become our identity. Chosen but exiled. Elect but displaced. It, it can make you dizzy to try to figure out how to feel and experience God's love while enduring this exile in a world that hates us. But that's who we are. Peter says there, elect exiles in the dispersion. You might translate in the diaspora. There's a Christian diaspora, a Christian dispersion. Later, he refers to it as the brotherhood. This is all language of identity. It's not that a few Christians have moved around and nobody sort of notices. All the Christians have been shaken up and displaced and scattered, so much so now that they think of themselves not in national terms, not in local terms, but they think of themselves as the diaspora, as this people who were no people, who are now a people who have no home in this world. That's who we are. Black, white, brown, yellow, old, young. We are the dispersion. We are the diaspora. There are people in this room, you, you know this naturally, right? Maybe, maybe you are of African descent. Maybe you are from... Namibia or Kenya, maybe you're from Cameroon or Nigeria, but you're here in the States. Maybe you're in the Caribbean. You don't stop being African. You become a part of the diaspora. Or maybe you're Filipino. Filipino people from the little island nation are scattered all over the globe. Dubai, U.S., Caribbean, Africa, they're part of the Filipino diaspora. The same is true of us as Christians. God has sprinkled us throughout the earth. None of it's home. And yet that is part of what has I, sort of defined us as his people. We are the dispersion. 
We are the exiles. We are forced from home, like Syrian refugees or people fleeing the war in Ukraine or folks looking for asylum at the borders of the southern United States. Spiritually speaking, we are the same. Now, in the Old Testament, exile was for a period of time. And God often promised, I'm going to bring you back to this land. In the New Testament, we have no such promise about this place. We have the promise of another place. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I'm going there, you'll be also in my Father's house. There are many mansions. John tells us in the Revelation that there is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's that place that is home for us. That heavenly place to which we are pilgrims and sojourners. This is why we suffer. It's baked into our identity as homeless people, as nomads and sojourners, forced into this fallen world, looking for that coming glorious new world. We don't fit here. At least we shouldn't. We should walk different. Talk different. Think different. Because this world is not our home. Now, the rest of 1 Peter will be difficult to understand and difficult to apply unless we understand and embrace this identity of being elect exiles. This, this is, uh, Du Bois some years ago gave us uh, the, the term double consciousness to describe the experience of African Americans in this country. At the same time, American and African, sort of two worlds inhabiting one person. Here, here now is the Christian version of that double consciousness. We are elect, we are chosen and loved by God, and yet we are exiles in the world. We have to hold those things together. And that's the challenge from this book. And, and we won't understand this book unless we're able to. But if we are, let me, let me give you some ways it makes a difference. Let me give you some applications. Number one, first application very simply is this. Accept that both these things are true about you, Christian. That you are really, really greatly loved. And you are really homeless in this world. Those two things are, are true of you. And when we accept these things and begin to view uh, the world and to begin to view life through that lens, uh, notice this, even as we just sort of cherry pick through Peter, notice some of the things that, that it makes a difference for. Number one, we can expect that our trials in this world will actually prove our faith. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Peter writes there, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7 so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the squeezing of this world is simply producing the, the juice of faith. And that faith is, is rising up in praise to God. That, that's a different way to look at your suffering. And your trials. Or notice number another thing here. If we have this sort of double consciousness of being elect and exile, then we will look to each other to be home for one another. Look there in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is God's temporary answer to our homelessness. We become home to each other. We are being built up into a spiritual house in which he inhabits by his spirit, but we inhabit together as his people. This is our apartment until we get that mansion in glory. It is the church. Or, or notice an, another difference it makes. Chapter 2, verse 11. It helps us to stop giving in to worldly passion. Being elect exiles. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there it is, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
We got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they are opposed to us in, with, with real anger and ferocity, seeking to destroy us. But if this world has no place in our hearts, if we see ourselves as strangers and pilgrims and sojourners, it enables us to abstain from these passions and to live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives in this present evil age while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more. If we see ourselves and live out this identity as elect exiles, we can stop interpreting suffering as strange. We can stop interpreting as strange. So look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what happens to holy people in a hostile world. It's not strange that we suffer. It's not strange that we have hardship. It's not strange that people oppose us. It's not strange that we are misunderstood and misrepresented. That's normal to the Christian life. And look again now at, at chapter 5, verse 10. He stays on, he comes back to this theme. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, though, the God of all grace, who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself, notice now, notice now, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. <laughs> Not your therapist. Praise God for therapy. Not your pastor, praise God for pastors, not your doctor, not your lawyer, not your next door neighbor, not your spouse, not your children, not a government program. God himself, the text says, after you have suffered a little while, will say, come, that's enough for my children. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to give you everything you need to recover from the suffering and prosper. That's what it's like. That's what he's like. And so we need to think about ourselves as elect exiles who on the other side of this exile and even in this exile have a God who will comfort us and strengthen us in these regular and sometimes extreme trials and sufferings. We are both elect and exile. And here's another application of that. We have to stop looking for the world's approval. We gotta stop it, beloved. We gotta stop looking to be popular in this world. I guarantee you something. If the world confers popularity on you, you have good reason to think God might be displeased. If it's popularity on their terms, a world that's hostile to God, well, it's enmity to God. So we have to stop looking for popularity from the world. We have to stop looking for credibility and legitimacy from the world. I don't care if that's in an academic institution or a professional association. Don't get me wrong. We should, as worship to God, we should thrive as students. We should thrive in our careers and our professions. We should do all those things as unto the Lord. And if there is some kind of applause that comes from that because we are serving the Lord, so be it. But there is this other thing that is a substitute for that, and that is carrying on your work, doing things as a student for the approval, for the legitimacy, for the credibility of worldly institutions and worldly power brokers. Got to stop that. We got to stop that. That's a fool's bargain. To have somebody in the world say, we approve of you at the expense of giving up Jesus' approval. Remember how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 1. He says, am I pleasing man or am I pleasing God? If, if I please man, I, I'm displeasing God. Those things are just not reconcilable. So we are elect exiles passing through this world, and we have to act like it. Remembering again the words of James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let us not do that, beloved. Let me give you one final application for this idea of being elect exiles and working it out 
in our lives. I think one thing we should then do is make decisions that are rooted in this elect exile identity. Make decisions that are rooted in this elect exile identity. What you talking about, Pastor? Let me give you an example. Just one example. Mess around in your business a little bit. How would an elect exile approach the decision about where to live and whether to buy a house? How would they approach that? Now, the default setting among Americans and American Christians is something like this. Buy the most house you can afford in the best neighborhood that you find. One more. Ain't that how we approach it? I'm going to get the most house I can afford in the best neighborhood I can find. Now, that's not sinful. Don't get me wrong. Okay, so we're not in the category of sin. We're not talking about sin. That's not sinful. It's not wrong to live in a nice house and in a nice neighborhood. God blesses you with that. Praise God. But here's the question beneath that. Does choosing that prepare us for an exile's reality? Does choosing the best house in the best neighborhood with the best schools prepare us to be what the Bible says we are? Really loved but really homeless. Elect exiles. Is it reflecting our true identity or is it reflecting something else? Like the American dream. Let's play this out. Let's play this out. You meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. I mean, they write right. You know, they say all the right things. They take you to all the right places. They, you know, they, they write. Y'all become Mr. and Mrs. Wright. And you find a dream house. So you got the dream spouse and the dream house and whatever else rhymes with house, right? You, you're excelling at your work and your career. Praise God. Praise God. Money's good. It's not funny, right? Your, your, school, your school system is top notch. Kids are in the best schools. and So for a while, you're, you're living the American dream. You, you really do. I mean, new phrases enter your vocabulary like generational wealth. Right? And it's great. But then, then at some point later, years later perhaps, you get forced out of that dream back into the reality of being in exile. You're no longer a resident in that beautiful home, in that great neighborhood with the super schools. There's a job loss or a sick spouse. Um, there's a downturn in the economy, a major illness, or the neighborhood itself changes. And suddenly we're, we're forced back into exile. But we've spent years living too comfortably to survive exile. So, so what do we do? Well, here's what typically happens. We don't go, oh, Lord, forgive me. I repent. I was living too high off the hog, right? I've gotten fat and sluggish. No, this is what we do. We get angry with God. We get bitter. The things I had now have been taken away. God, you ain't right. And God looking at you like, you ain't talking to one of your little friends. Right? See, the root issue was, we were trying not to live like exile. We're trying to find a home in this world. And we're trying to make it comfortable with 32 pillows on the bed. She went out the room. That was shady. We were trying to settle here. Not pass through here. <laughs> not pass through here. But how would an exile think about this? Well, an exile might make a, a different set of decisions. It's growing up out of their identity. I'm really loved. God's going to provide for me. He promises that, right? But I'm also really homeless. I'm an exile. So how he provides and how I use his provision should reflect the fact that I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm passing through this place. So an exile might choose an inexpensive home or choose to always rent. I'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. No shade to my real estate friends in here. Right? But, but you know the party line, right? That, that's success, to buy a home, to have a home, and, and all those kinds of things. Nothing wrong with it. It's not sin. Not sin. I'm talking about the kinds of homes we might, we might choose, right? Or whether 
they might choose. So you might choose a tougher neighborhood. You, you might do that because you're preparing actively to live unsettled, to, to live in a way that feels slightly homeless, to live uprooted because you're an exile. And you might choose those things because not only do they match your identity, but they match your mission. But God has called us to go. All right? So you want to live in a way in which you got one light bag packed. Because at any moment, your commanding officer might say, you got orders. Let's go. Let's choose somewhere else. Wow, the more rooted you get, the harder that is, ain't it? An exile is like, yo, we are always on the move. We left our home. We're in this country. They're just tolerating us, not welcoming us. They're passing laws to make it harder on us. We're getting pushed out of this country. Now we're in the next country. And the same kind of thing because they have already heard word that these exiles are coming. So they're closing their borders. They're making things tougher. That's the exile's experience. We want to be prepared to live that way. Now, now let, me, let me tighten up something real quick. The exile who lives this way finds out that the place of exile, the place of exile where God sends them, is actually the place of blessing. Exile does not equal your worst life. So easy to hear that word and think, man, this is going to be my worst life. That's not what God means at all. That's not what God does at all. When we're in Jeremiah 29, you remember what he tells them? Seek the welfare of the city. Why? Because in its welfare will be your what? Your welfare. God intends, yes, to have us live as exiles because this is not our home. He's prepared another place for us, but he also intends to provide for us in the midst of exile. So choosing the exile life is not choosing your worst life. Choosing the exile life is not hustling backwards, beloved. It's not. It's advancing in the plans and the ways that God has for us. Can I give you just a word of testimony here? We went from the Cayman Islands to southeast Washington, D.C. Sister shaking her head already. That's the reaction I get every time somebody learns that we were in the Cayman Islands. They look at me sort of incredulous. And then they almost always say, you miss God's will. It wasn't God's will for you to leave that and come here, right? It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how often God's will looks exactly like what we wanted to do anyway. I'm afraid we live in a Christian world that doesn't believe that God will call you to do something you don't want to do. But that's the exile's reality, right? So we, we left the Cayman Islands. We were there for eight years. Lovely time, beautiful church, beautiful people. Um, just tremendous. All the things you think about, like clear blue water, white sand beaches, you know, sunshine, 362 days out of the year. You know, you had two seasons. You had peak season and hurricane season. And otherwise, you know, life was good. It's the kind of place where you could go downtown, a woman could leave her purse in the car, on the seat, even leave the windows down, and nobody would bother it. That's where a lot of places people would want to be. Why would you leave there and come here? Why trade white sand beaches for a concrete jungle? The truth is, beloved, this life is the best life I've ever had. Easily. We feel ourselves to be in the center of God's will. And we feel ourselves to be at peace in the midst of everything that's happening around us. And we have seen God provide for us richly and abundantly through the generosity of this church. Not just for us in terms of being able to have a nice home, the nicest home we ever lived in. We don't have that home. We were preparing to sort of renovate the, the place that the Matthews are now in. And we're like, but we can't even have people over for this. And, and God through a set of hard, hard providences, which we won't get into here, provides our home for us which I hope you feel like is a church house because y'all over there all the time and, and, we, and we love it. That, that's part of the richness of God's blessing. He's given us you. I love this church. And this is, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, I wasn't hunting for that, but, I, but I'll take it. I'll take it. And, and, I, and I, this is probably improper on some level. I don't, I don't know, but 
I, I love this church more than any church I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. Easily. Easily. You know? You are my exile home. You are the ones God has given to us to, to be family, to be home, to be the glimpse of glory before it comes. This is the happy place. Right smack in the middle of Southeast and what other people might think Southeast is. But we know the beauty and the burden of this place, don't we? And we know a God who's with us in exile. So I just want to encourage you, I'm going to speed on, to make life decisions like God really, really loves you and like this world really, really is not your home. That's going to be the combination that leads to God's richest blessings. Let's speed on to our last two points. Number three, God does wonderful things for his special people. I get that from verse two. Peter continues to describe the Christian, um, what he means when he calls them uh, elect exiles. But now he switches now. He switches to focus on God, and he switches the focus on God's acts in salvation. He tells us three things, that uh, they are elect exiles. Number one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Number two, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And number three, uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Now, you probably noticed that. It's Trinitarian. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son each participating fully in our salvation. The Father is like, yo, I, I, there's a people that I know beforehand. And in the Bible, God's foreknowledge, again, is connected with his love. It's not just that he was omniscient and knew that you and I would exist. It's that he loved us even before we existed. And so we are called to him according to his foreknowledge and forelove. And the Spirit said, I want to get in on that. These people can't keep themselves. They, they can't be holy in their own strength. And so we are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now has set us apart for God. The Holy Spirit now has, has made us holy in God's sight. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives not only to set us apart positionally, but to progressively, day by day, moment by moment, sort of conform us to the image of Christ. Paul tells us that he seals us until the day of redemption. So we have now this gift of the Holy Spirit, who is God, stamping us as belonging to God, sealing us as belonging to God until the day of Christ, and living in us and at work in us, even during our exile, to make us more and more like Jesus. And the Son of God is like, I get on this too. And so you see the third thing there, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And I don't know what you need in the way of encouragement, but that last phrase for me, <laughs> we are called to obey Jesus, which is right because he's Lord. He deserves our obedience. But how many of you know, like I know in my own life, that my obedience to God is imperfect? and fickle, and sometimes missing, even sometimes rebellious. There are times where I know God is like, call this person, do this thing, uh, don't say that, don't do that, and I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, I hear you, Lord, and run ahead and do it anyway. That's just me? Okay, it'll just be me. It'll just be me. All right, I mean, I'm gone two months. Maybe y'all stop telling the truth in those two months, but, but look, that's it. I know that my obedience is not perfect. So that next phrase, we are not only for obedience to Jesus Christ, but for sprinkling with his blood. Now, Peter is reaching back. He's Jewish now. He's probably read Leviticus. He's reaching back to the Old Testament for that image of sprinkling with his blood. Now, you remember in Leviticus, the sprinkling of the blood happened on at least two occasions. Number one, things that were set aside in the temple, the, the things that they worshiped with, and the priests were set aside by the sprinkling of blood on them. That's consecration. But then also, in the, in the sacrifices themselves, when offerings were being made on the altar, that that blood would be sprinkled on the altar, and that blood would be sprinkled in various ways, indicating atonement by the blood. Right? So we are not only set apart, but we're also covered by the blood. 
We, we need that because our obedience ain't perfect. Our obedience ain't pure. Our obedience is weak and fledgling. And every place that my obedience ain't what it's supposed to be, and every place where I think my obedience is all that and it ain't, I'm covered by this sprinkling, by the sprinkling of God's blood. All of my righteousness is in him and his perfect obedience and his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood. It's the acts of God that have brought us this salvation. Not our, not our own acts. Let me, let, me, let me try to put this a different way. Maybe you can take this home. The Trinitarian acts in salvation become the Christian's attributes in salvation. That's a little vague. What God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do to save us becomes how God defines us in the world. Let me get a little closer to it. God ain't never done something for you that did not become a part of you. Y'all ain't with me yet. What God does, we become. What he does, we become. He foreknew us before the world began and, and foreknew us in his love, and so now we have become the beloved of God. The Spirit came into the world to, to sanctify us, and, and so now we have become the holy people of God. We are sanctified by his spirit. Christ Jesus came into the world because of our disobedience to offer a perfect righteousness to God and to die in atonement for his sins. And so now we are those who are obedient and righteous in God's sight. Everything God does for us is something that's done in us. What he does, we become. Really what First Peter is about, I think, over and over again, it's not just suffering and not just holiness, but identity. God is getting our identity right so that we should be the kind of people who walk around saying to ourselves, I am foreknown by God the Father and sanctified in the Spirit and obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, we got to stop so much po about who we are as Christians. We, we got to stop always complaining and mumbling and, 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 and just dogging ourselves and, and, and being so conscious of our weaknesses that we forget the gospel. We got to stop po-mouthing. And we got to start preaching these things to ourselves every day. I think this is the most useful thing we could do out of this greeting is to be preaching to ourselves that we are foreknown and foreloved by God, that we are sanctified in the spirit, that Christ has become our righteousness. I mean, sometimes our spiritual blindness and our dullness comes from not believing the truth about ourselves in the Bible. We'll have much more victory if we remind each other and remind ourselves that God does wonderful things for his people. And the most wonderful thing of all is that he has saved us according to his foreknowledge and the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Christ was sprinkling in his blood. And beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. The wonderful thing is, is God still doing that? The, the Christians who are in here, we didn't all get saved on the same day at the same time. We came in different days and different hours and different ways and different places from different backgrounds and different walks of life. We were so many ordinary people that God made special through his love. He had an appointed time for our salvation. And beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. God has proven his love for you in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ came into the world and died for our sins. He was nailed to the cross to suffer our punishment. We deserve that punishment, beloved. No, no, no. We deserve that punishment. We deserve the wrath of God because of our rebellion. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, 
while we were still sinners, sent his son into the world to die for you. Now, make that personal. Now, he didn't just die for people abstractly. He died for you, personally. Your name was written on his heart when he went to the cross. Your sins were carried on his back when he went to the cross. Your life was in his hand when he was raised from the grave. It is for you to turn away from sin and to put your faith in this Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, today is the day to become a Christian. Don't don't delay. Today is the day to, to sort of come to know that you are really loved by God. And listen, beloved, to also come to know that God's going to make you homeless in this world because he's got a better world for you. And you say, that sounds real hard, Pastor T. Yep. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Trade this world, which you can't hold forever anyway, for that world that's coming, which never perishes. Put your faith in Jesus this morning. If you want to know more about how to do that, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Uh, Pastor Dennis is going to raise his hand. Pastor Babatunde, uh, the deacons and deaconesses, just raise your hand real quickly wherever you sit. Uh, if you're a Christian in here and you know and understand the gospel, raise your hand. Okay, see all those hands? All those people will be happy to talk with you about how you may be saved and have eternal life and eternal love with God through faith in Jesus. Don't leave without talking with us. Last thing, number four, we're done. God gives blessings that defy our burdens. That comes from the end of verse two. We finally get to the greeting. There Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This little wish prayer contains so much power and promise. As Peter concludes his greeting, he lets the exile, the elect exiles know what he wishes for them. He wishes grace, which is God's kindness. God's kindness, particularly when we don't deserve it. He says, may God be kind to you. May God be good to you. No matter your standing, no matter what's going on, may he be good to you. And he wishes peace, which is God's settled calm, no, no matter what's happening around them. He wants that, notice, multiply. In other words, he wants them to see God's grace and peace in every situation and at all times. It takes us too long to try to list all the situations and all the ways in which we need God's grace and peace to show up in our lives, but God is infinite. Know that. There's no grace you need that he doesn't have. There's no peace you want that he can't give. And, and he tells us as much in his word. So just two quotes from scripture just to end on. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. This is what the Apostle Paul writes there. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Never has the word all been so beautiful. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Whatever kindness, whatever favor you need, God can make it spring towards you, run to you, run over you, overflow you, abound to you, so that why? You would have all sufficiency in his grace. In other words, you would be enough. You would have enough according to his grace, and then you would be enough in all things and at all times. That's how boundless God's grace is so that you may abound in every good work. Oh, listen, beloved, this prayer that Peter offers for grace, that's answered. Write it down. Write it down. And not just grace, but peace now. Peace. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's the consequence of peace. Peace just pushes out trouble and fear. And this is the nature of God's peace. See, the world's peace is temporary. It's faltering. It fails. You can have it for a hot minute, then the least little thing has you rattled. 
But God doesn't give peace that way. He gives his peace. And that peace surpasses understanding. That's a prayer, too, that's answered when we offer it in faith. Grace and peace are blessings that far exceed our burdens. Now, when you're feeling the burden, it's sometimes hard to believe that, ain't it? But burdens lie. Burdens lie about God. Suffering lies about God. It tries to tell us that God is not sufficient. God is not enough. His grace is not enough. His peace is not enough. Those are lies from the world, the flesh, and the devil. What God says here is that he's able to make all grace abound to us for every situation and circumstance. And he's able to give us peace that the world can't take away. The question becomes, who are we going to believe? Our burdens or God's promise of blessings? This is all a greeting. This is how you greet an exile. You remind them of who they are, what God has done and how God would bless them. If we do this for one another, we will be holy in a hostile world. If we'll do this for one another, we'll be more than holy. We'll also be happy in a hostile world. So as we end, let's join a little conspiracy here. Let's join a conspiracy to remind ourselves and to remind each other of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for 1 Peter. We thank you for how it, even from the greeting, illustrates to us that though we're ordinary, you're able to make us your special people. Indeed, if we are in Christ, you have already done so. And we thank you, Lord, for how you have not only called us into a life that sometimes has hardships, but you've called us into a life where you are still acting on our behalf and where the promise of your blessing far surpass the reality of our burdens. So we do pray, along with Peter, that you would give us grace and peace multiplied. Not divided and not merely added, but multiplied exponentially so that we might be your holy people in this hostile world. And this we will do if you would hear and answer our prayers for grace and peace. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.